welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Vinny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to part two of our discussion on blood clots. Last week, we did part one, our background knowledge of what you should know in episode seven. So if you haven't listened to that yet, please go back and take a listen. Today in part two, we're talking more about prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of blood clots. So I'll be going through guidelines published by both the American Society of Hematologists and the American Physical Therapy Association so that you get the best and most up-to-date information on this condition. For prevention, I think it's helpful to review the main risk factors for a blood clot forming in the first place. The first being the blood pooling in the legs. So Normally, our blood circulates freely, but when it stays still in our legs, that's where a blood clot is more likely to occur. The second risk factor theme would be injury to the vein itself, usually with a surgery or a trauma to that area, or especially in the arm if a medical device is inserted into the vein. Third main risk factor theme is if you have an underlying condition that makes you more likely to clot. And that could be a genetic condition. Um, Sometimes you'll hear it called hypercoagulable is where your blood is more likely to clot. And it could be um, as a result of some other conditions like having cancer or in the pregnancy and postpartum phases. So keeping those things in mind, One of the simpler things to address, especially from a physical therapy standpoint, which is where I come from, is the the blood pooling in the legs, or sometimes it's called venous stasis. So a very simple way to prevent that is just to move more. Um, It doesn't always have to be that complicated, but getting up and walking every hour or two can be really helpful. Um, While you're sitting, tapping your toes, wiggling your toes, any sort of movement at the foot or ankle can be helpful in getting the blood to move out of the legs and back to the heart. Now, for some of us, that's not as easy to achieve, especially if, let's say, your leg is in a cast, you can't be moving all that freely but hopefully you could still wiggle your toes to get a little bit of movement there. Now, if you have a condition like a spinal cord injury, a stroke, or another neurological condition that makes it hard or impossible to voluntarily move your leg, then we'll need to look at some of these other forms of prevention. So what do the experts say? 
the American Society of Hematology, or ASH, published a guideline on venous thromboembolism. So that whole continuum of conditions from a blood clot, usually in the leg, to potentially traveling to the lungs. So what they have to say in terms of prevention, they differentiate between patients who are hospitalized and those who are not. They say for those who are not hospitalized, like a long distance air traveler, which is where a lot of us get concerned about a blood clot just in our normal lives. They say if you don't have an elevated risk for clotting, you don't need to wear compression socks or take a blood thinner like aspirin to prevent a clot. But if you are at increased risk, you may benefit from those compression stockings or a medication called low molecular weight heparin, also known as Lovenox. Now, I'll just say as an aside, compression socks can be helpful for more than just blood clot prevention. They can be helpful if you have low blood pressure or develop low blood pressure while in the air. So something to consider if you're worried about travel. I would also loop in long distance car travel. As I talked about in part one, I have seen patients doing cross-country drives who don't take enough breaks and have developed blood clots in that setting as well. Now, most of the guidelines have to do with patients who are hospitalized because that's where we have bigger risk factors, usually more than one thing, making someone at higher risk for a blood clot. Another thing that's often considered when we start talking about medications to treat blood clotting is not only someone's clotting risk, but their bleeding risk as well. So it can be a bit of a delicate balance of treating and preventing a clot while also not making someone's blood too thin in the sense that they're going to be much more likely to bleed with any injury or what's called a spontaneous bleed where a bleed just occurs on its own because that can lead to its own big consequences. The rest of the guidelines help the physicians to determine which type of medication would be most appropriate for someone who's in the hospital. Now, when we talk about diagnosis of a blood clot, there are again some guidelines here. So let's say you're someone who's not in the hospital, but you listened to part one and you started to understand the signs and symptoms of a blood clot and you want to make sure that what you're experiencing is looked at further. Usually the first test your physician would run is a D-dimer test, which is just a blood test and looks for a marker that if it's present, you might have a blood clot, but if it's not present, you definitely don't have a blood clot. So that's what they do first. So if that test is negative, then there's really no concern for a blood clot. If it's positive, then they'll go into more testing. In the hospital setting, that D-dimer is less useful for diagnosing a blood clot because it gets elevated with a variety of conditions that at least one of them is usually present in anyone who's in the hospital. Now, when someone's in the hospital for a surgery, that may be where we're more concerned. 
about a blood clot, but the the American Society of Hematologists reminds us that not all surgeries are the same and not all of them require these different interventions to prevent a clot. So this, if you're concerned, would be a good discussion with your surgeon if you have an upcoming surgery about what your personal risk is for a blood clot and what type of surgery you're having and if that will put you at higher risk. Now, let's say you've gotten to the point of not only having a blood clot, but having a pulmonary embolism. There is strong recommendation that there's a big medical therapy intervention to treat it. So blood thinning drugs would be used in that case. And then long-term, there's also recommendations that patients would continue those blood thinners or anticoagulants to prevent another clot from happening. Now, similar to our surgical scenario, if you do have cancer, which we talked about as being a condition that increases your risk of clotting, there are still ranges within that diagnosis of if you're someone who's at low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk. And once your physician determines that, they can decide which course of treatment is going to be best for you. Okay, so that's the overview of the medical guidelines. I will link them in the show notes. And now we'll talk about more of the physical therapy guidelines, which I'm more familiar with because it's what I do and what I've integrated into my practice over the years. And I find, probably I'm biased, but I find that the physical therapy guidelines just tend to be more practical and for those of us who are not physicians, easier for us to implement into our own lives anyway. So from the physical therapy standpoint, we look at is the person high risk for a blood clot? And really either way, if it's a yes or no, it's our job and our profession to encourage mobility and physical activity. So whether or not you're at risk, it's good for your body to move and to not be sitting all day for a variety of reasons. If you are at risk, then we think more broadly about not only mobility, but encouraging the use of a compression sock or other type of mechanical compression, talking with your physician about medication and providing education on prevention. And let's say that you now have some symptoms of a DVT in the leg, what we would do as physical therapists is use a tool called the Wells Criteria to see how likely is it that you do have a DVT. I'll link the Wells Criteria in the show notes as well, but it is the gold standard for screening for a blood clot in the leg or a DVT. And that's something we can do as therapists, physicians can do. It does take a little bit of training. It's something I train on a lot when I'm working with therapists, but once you understand it, it's pretty straightforward and that can help the physician to understand if they need to order 
more testing. Now, the Wells rule isn't perfect. It gives, there is a numerical score, but then it just leads to a likely or a not so likely diagnosis of DVT, but it's currently the best thing we have for just looking at someone um, and doing measurements outside of lab work or imaging. Now, let's say me, someone is in the hospital with a confirmed DVT or PE. We do have guidelines as physical therapists for when it is safe to move again. So the concern with a newly diagnosed DVT that hasn't been treated yet is, is the act of moving or contracting the muscles in the leg going to dislodge that clot and send it up to the lungs to become a pulmonary embolism, which as we talked about in part one can be quite devastating. So we do have guidelines for us depending on the type of treatment as to when it is safe to move again. And the range is really two hours to 48 hours is our range for when we can help the patient to move again, um, depending on what type of medication they're receiving. Now, if they're not receiving any medication, which is usually if there's a bleeding concern or a bleed already present, um, then it takes a little bit more consultation with the medical team to decide when is the best time to move. And I go through all of this just to hopefully give you some assurance that if this does happen to you, there are pretty clear guidelines in place to help guide your care providers in treating for you in the most effective and safe way possible because it is a delicate situation that you may find yourself in. There is a condition called post-thrombotic syndrome which can occur after a DVT where you would have some long-term symptoms. And what can happen is if it's a big clot, especially one that occurs above the knee, so it's blocking a lot of blood from returning back to the body, you can have some changes in the skin and in the blood vessels around it. And that can lead to a feeling of heaviness in your leg, itching, tingling, or cramping, pain in the leg, especially when standing up. So again, if we think about gravity, that would pull more blood down to the lower leg, making it even harder for the blood to leave the leg. And then that pain tends to get a little better when you're lying down. So you, you have gravity on your side. Um, it can lead to swelling. You could see your other veins getting bigger because they're trying to take the load. And you could see some skin changes too where it gets dark or red. It's something that can be diagnosed with ultrasound, um, which is how one of the ways they diagnose a clot in the first place or a blood test again. It's usually treated with compression therapy. So compression, again, can help move the blood out of the leg back to the rest of the body and re reduce some of those symptoms. A few practical tips about 
compression socks. They can be hard to get on. There are different versions of them. So the medical compression socks that you may have seen before, they're usually white and have an opening in the toe. They're also called TED hose for thromboembolic deterrent is that acronym of TED. And those, like I said, are the ones that are typically used in the hospital. One of my pet peeves with those stockings is often they roll down at the top, which completely defeats the purpose. So a functioning compression stocking or sock will have the most compression or pressure at the ankle and then gradually have less pressure going up the leg. The idea being we want to encourage as much blood to leave the lower leg as possible. Now, when they roll down from the top, it complete, it reverses that. So now you have the most pressure at the top where that roll of stocking is almost like a little tourniquet. And then it only leads to more blood sitting in the lower leg. So if you do use those stockings, please be mindful to keep them um, unrolled, unwrinkled, make sure they actually fit you. I do have a video that I will link for how you can put those that style of stocking on a little bit easier. So that hole in the toe is actually useful because you can use a plastic bag over the foot to help the sock to slide on a little faster. The video you'll see, I'm actually the leg model in it from several years ago when we were creating some educational videos for our total joint replacement program. So you'll see another person helping to put the stocking on because the audience for that video was someone recently post-op. If you don't have any surgical precautions and you can access your own feet, you can certainly put them on yourself in that case. There are now a lot more compression stockings available commercially. A lot of athletes are now using them to improve performance. Again, the same reason of getting the blood out of the legs back up to the heart to feed the muscles can improve athletic performance. And it can be a little bit hit or miss as to how effective those different socks are. Some of the ones I have, I don't find to be quite as compressive at the ankle as I need. They're more compressive at the calf, so they don't do quite as good of a job of having that graduated compression of being tighter at the ankle and looser at the calf. All right, so there is your overview of prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of blood clots. I hope you found this informative. There will be plenty of resources in the show notes for you to look at and get more information. Just remember the big theme is to keep moving. It really doesn't have to be that scary or that hard. There are a lot of materials for us who work in healthcare to help guide our treatment of you and make sure you get the best outcome possible. Thank you for listening and I hope you have a great week. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. 
If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.